HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. Kat Johnson kicked the season off with an episode about food and football, so now we're turning to one of my favorite sports, talking about cookbooks. We'll take a sneak peek at a few recipe breakthroughs that Rose Levy Berenbaum discovered while working on her 12th cookbook. You know, so this was such a eureka thing. People ask me if I still keep learning, and yeah, just thinking about it and trying to find a better way. It happens. And hear about the challenges of writing a book about alcohol from HRN host Souther Teague. The history of drinking is very blurry because people were drinking and no one was writing, taking notes. Plus, we'll get all the expert dish about the most exciting cookbook titles heading to bookstores this fall. Like jazz music has been a part of American cuisine for, for centuries. Subscribe to Meet and Three wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the next episode drops. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this culinary journey through culinary history on Heritage Radio Network. And before we begin today, I would like to give a fond farewell, no, a cheery send-off to our respected engineer, David Tattashore. This is David Tattashore's last day at Heritage Radio Network, and he's on to... I hope bigger and better things and uh, climbing the career of radio engineering. And I thank him for all the years of service he gave here at Heritage Radio and helping to make me sound good. That's easy, Linda. (laughs) Thanks, David. And good luck and best wishes in everything you do. Thank you. You're welcome. And today uh, we have a show for anyone, and I would imagine that includes just about anyone, interested in the heritage of Egypt's cuisine. When you think of Egypt, you think, oh my goodness, that's that's so old. How could anyone know? Well, yes, very old. And now there's a new source for research into the medieval period, which really, I think, cemented a lot of the, um, the culinary 
heritage for Egypt, but I'll ask that question to my guests. The new source is the very first English language, trans well, not very first translation, but, but best English language translation of a medieval Egyptian cookbook entitled Treasure Trove of Benefits and Variety at the Table, a 14th century Egyptian cookbook. This is uh, quite a work that was undertaken, and this book, referred to as the Khans al-Fawaid, I don't know if I'm saying that quite right, but we'll find that out too. Fawad. Okay, Fawad. All right, there. Thank you. <laughs> the original Arabic manuscript of this cookbook of over 800 recipes was written by, as far as we know, an anonymous author during Egypt's Middle Era. And with its comprehensive array of recipes, it also contains a full range of the Egyptian culinary heritage as well. And it tells us a lot about the culture of the times in Egypt, in, in Cairo. And the book remained largely unknown. It was translated and edited, I think, what is it? Well, we'll find that, I think in 93, but it wasn't really very accurate, and we'll find out why. And, and then the most recent version was undertaken by Iraqi scholar, my guest, did you hear her giggling at my, <laughs> my presumptions in the background, Nawal Nasrallah. She has written an extensive introduction and a glossary and added photographs and, and modernizations of recipes and has just done, and you know, I can't even imagine the job of translating this compendium of, of uh, recipes, instructions, um, descriptions, and she's no, she's actually, she's also a food blogger and an avid cook, and she is no stranger to interpreting ancient recipes. She translated the annals of Caliph's Kitchens, the Al-Warak 10th century Baghdadi cookbook, and her previous book, which she was on to talk about several years ago, is called Delights from the Garden of Eden, a cookbook and history of Iraqi cuisine. Nawal taught English at the universities of Mosul and Baghdad in Iraq before moving to the States in the 90, in late 90s. And she was often asked by her American friends about Iraqi recipes and the lack of resources on the topic in the U.S. That led her to write and research Arabic culinary culture. Welcome, Nawal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I, congratulations on this monumental achievement. I don't know if I quite managed to convey that, but Thanks. what, I mean, what a book. And I have to say, the book is also eminently cookable. Can one say cookable? <laughs> which yeah. is not always, yeah, is. which is yeah. not always the case in, you know, in doing a lot of research and looking at, um, ancient texts or, you know, medieval texts, you get, ideas of dishes, but you really couldn't, you know, stand in your kitchen and cook from them. But this one is actually, you know, cookable. I have a couple of dishes I can't wait to try. Yeah, I agree, totally agree. I mean, that's why I, uh, I added an appendix with the 22 modernized recipes, uh, just to give, you know, to encourage others to discover uh, other recipes and to try them for themselves, because they are really worth trying. Well, and I hope that you'll do more and post them on your blog as you go along. Yeah, yeah. Well, as yeah, as I have the time, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, well, in this, because this book sort of stayed in obscurity to the Western world, at least for so long, what were the challenges that were presented in translating the work? Um, 
Well, it is the, uh, of course, we have an edited text. I mean, the, yes. um, the I mean, writers, talk, I mean, that talk was about it. I mean, it was said that there was an Egyptian cookbook, Kenzil Fawaid, by Maxime Rodinson in the 19, 1948 and uh, before him, you know, and, uh, um, you know, so we know there is such an... Uh, a manuscript, <clears throat> but then uh, it, it waited for so long until 1993, and it until it was edited, you know, the Arabic edition uh, by Manuela Marine and David Waynes. So it came out in 1993, and then it waited until 2018 <laughs> or end of 2017 until. This English, I mean, it's it's not only the only the first English translation, but the only translation that uh, you know uh, saw the light, um, you know, after the edited uh, edition. Yeah. Um, well, the edited edition was very helpful for me because they did a meticulous uh, research and uh, you know reading of the texts. Um, we have about we have uh, five manuscripts, and they worked on them. And uh, they have thousands of footnotes appended to the to their edited edition, where they, they where they give you know the variations of the text, and so that was helpful for me because you know I could see that uh, in the edited text, the printed one, uh, I I can do a better choice if I use the other choice they have in the appendix. So that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, but now still, Arabic. Yeah. I mean, Arabic is your la- native language, but still, you yeah. were you were presented with um, a lot of different variations, and yeah, right. Yeah, there were a lot of challenges simply because the um, the copies we have, they none of them was in perfect condition. Mm. Um, they had certain lacunas. They had uh, certain uh, incorrectly copied words. Uh, one of the, uh, I mean, there are. I discovered that uh, one of the copyists, uh, he just <laughs> skipped a folio and then he jumped <laughs> to the other, you know, just like two pages. And then I discovered. I mean, I looked at the at the uh, recipe and I say, I mean, the last four lines do not belong here. They do not make sense. So what's happening here? So luckily, I was able to get um, a manuscript that the editors didn't use. Uh, I got it from uh, uh, it's, uh, it's in a German um, um, uh, library. So when I got it, I realized that uh, oh boy, this copyist they have skipped uh, pages, <laughs> two pages, and then he jumped to the other recipe. So I was able to find the missing uh, recipes and find the beginning of the of the four lines at the end of this recipe. So it's uh, it really it was you know it's it it, it was so messy sometimes <laughs> it you know drove me mad you know just yeah. trying to to see the connections and so but you know one has to be patient and I have to uh, you know believe that basically the text was good and you know because the problem is that the copies we have is not the original manuscript that the original writer wrote it is a copy from a copy from a copy so by passage of time. Of course, things uh, change, and the readers and the copyists, uh, after like uh, 300 years or something, they no longer recognize the words. They cannot, uh, you know, so they just jot down anything. Or the reader 
wasn't able to read a word, and he just gave him another word. <laughs> so, you know, they just take liberties, but it, it, it really poses a problem for, uh, for, for modern readers. Right. So I have to go through all these problems, and I'm, I'm glad that I, you know, like, uh, you know, like 97 of the problems I managed to solve. Well, that, now, in saying that, well, we didn't have the original, man, we don't have the original manuscript, does it exist, the original Somewhere? No, no, yeah, it's, it's long gone. No, we we only have um, like you know one is from the 17th century. The others don't have dates, and uh, mm-hmm. so they are you know like uh, they come they, the the ones we have are uh, they come as a series of uh, recopying. Mm-hmm. Now, from reading all of the different versions, are you of the belief that it was really under one author's pen? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I am convinced that it is was written by, by um, you know, by uh, one person because, um, you know, uh, I, I he gives he gave me the impression that he had a plan. He he gives the um, in his introduction he gives the um, kind of survey of the chapters he, he covered and he said I chose to call it Kenzil Fawaid fi Tanwi al Mawaid and then he. He goes on, you know, with his uh, with his chapters. I didn't see that it was uh, like a patched work or something. Uh huh. So the style was, was stayed yes. pretty much. The well, same. the style. Uh, I cannot say about the style because when we talk about how he wrote it, you know, we'll realize that it's copying. Yes. But he, you know, he did some. I, I, I assume he did some editing, but. Uh, you know, it's just a you know regular style, simple style. He did, he wasn't after a literary effect or something, mm. so it it wasn't a problem. The style. Do you think that he was a chef in a in a home, and perhaps a you know a royal mm. home or? Not. I don't get this impression. I only. I mean, the impression I get of the writer, I mean, anonymous as he is, mm-hmm. is just what I. The impression I got is that he was a kind of scribe, what we call mm-hmm. katib. Um, he was interested. He was a gourmet, and he was interested in uh, writing uh, a kind of book that was in demand that sells. And he had access to several manuals, so he put it together. That was the way they did the books. Okay. Well, you mentioned that they were probably drawn from several different pamphlets, and that. Yes, and I, yeah. what? So, what you meant by pamphlets were just different versions on certain foods that would have been dispersed throughout the he, community. Well, for example, he has a chapter on pickles. Mm-hmm. It has a lot, you know, like more than thirty recipes on pickles. So um, I think that they used to write, for example, at the time, um, certain small books for picklers so that they can use it when they make pickles. Yeah, much like we have today. I mean, you know. Yes, yeah, specialized specialized, uh, uh, booklets for, uh, like, fermented sauces, uh, booklets for desserts, and so on. So he had access to all these, and he put them together. And what struck me is that he... I mean, his aim, from the title, you know that he wants to put as many recipes as possible. <laughs> he called it Kenzil Fawaid, which is the treasure trove. It is indeed a treasure trove. Yes. Yes, because those pamphlets, none of them, I, I'm not aware of, of the, those pamphlets, picnic pamphlets or uh, fermented sauces or the dessert, none of them uh, survived. You know, only his book survived. So it's really a treasure. 
Yeah. Well, who do you think the book was intended for? Well, um, several. Uh, basically, um, it was intended for households. Um, of course, you know, households, um, it's, it, we would expect like middle class households. They have maids, several ones. They have, uh, um, so they have uh, different hands working in the kitchen. So um, they could easily put these uh, dishes together because, you know, they, we, I mean, they are like us. We always like to uh, look for, uh, you know, unusual dishes to surprise uh, others and so on. So um, they, they used to, um, you know, buy these books and uh, try to find the unusual dishes or try perhaps to make perfect some of the dishes they cook or find variations for, you know, basic dish they cook. This is where they find these things, uh, I mean, in such books. Also, um I'm, uh, I also get the impression that he also, I mean, such a book uh, would be very useful for uh, apprentices mm-hmm. uh, looking for, uh, you know, like training to be cooks. This, this is really, this would be really useful for them. And it would be useful for um, what else? Um, also for, uh, you know, hired or, uh, you know, employed uh, uh, cooks. Because I, in one of the recipes, he he tells he said, "Do you want to learn how to uh, present your master with uh, ripe fruits like a ripe apple or a ripe citron with uh, with with the writings in, in in green on it? If you want to do this, <laughs> and he teaches the you know how he he gives instructions how to do this. He says, if you do this, you will gain your master's favor. So." Uh-huh. You know, he has such people in mind. Yeah. Also, in the um, in the market, uh, there were different uh, shops, uh, places where you buy, um, or you know, ready cooked foods, or where you buy. There were also uh, certain cooks that uh, you go and give them the ingredients. You do the shopping yourself. You give the ingredients to this person, and he cooks those dishes for you. Oh. So uh, in the um, manuals, in the, uh, you know, the market uh, inspection manuals, they say that such cooks, they need to learn how to cook dishes really well before they start their business. So, you know, know, a lot of people would uh, benefit from this. And also, um, you know, such books perhaps, I mean, um, this book was uh, uh, kind of plagiarized. (laughs) <laughs> and it appeared in an abridged form in the 15th century. Uh, and we, uh, I mean, ironically, we know the person of the plagiarizer, but we don't, don't know the know name the, of the... <laughs> the original author. Yeah, yeah. Yes. His name is Ibn Mubarak Shah. He was a, a famous scholar. And uh, he presented it in a, in, a, in, a, in a abridged form because he said, I don't like uh, long-windedness. And he said, I am writing this book for the benefit of my own household, for my own slave girls, so that they cook the dish. Hmm, interesting. You know, those dishes. Well, I, I, so a lot of people can, you know. Yeah, to lot, use it. Yeah, well, and yeah. when you're mentioning about, when you mentioned um, about perhaps um, it would be used for people he was training, someone being trained to be a cook, the very opening line, whether that was the original or not, was that, was, which struck me as, as almost humorous, the cook must be a very agreeable person. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you don't like an angry cook. <laughs> right. And then down to the hygiene of the yes, you know, yeah. fingernail. I mean, much like today's manuals for, you know, for beginning chefs, you know, the fingernails must be clean and clipped yes, and, you know, yes. on and th- I mean, really detailed. I know, and uh, cleaning the, you know, the utensils, how to clean them. Right. Yeah, it was very, things to avoid. Yeah, I found that you don't see that in, in rarely, in, you know, in, in um, cookbooks, even, you know, the old texts. In fact, um, in listening to you lecture one other time on, well, I guess it was on the Baghdadi cookbook, you have done a lot of interpreting of recipes and and. You, well, like the um, cuneiform tablets, even yes. you say that just they're just sort of suggestions of ingredients, and that one always assumes that the person reading them already knows how to cook and what yes, to do yeah. with them, right? Yeah, yeah. Which leads us to the uh, question as uh, what kind of uh, you know what what level of uh, cooks you know uh, you expect to use those books? I mean, the, uh, definitely such books are not intended for beginners. I mean, right. nowadays we have books. Uh, that teach you the ABC of cooking, how to <laughs> <laughs> how to boil an egg or to do these basic things. No, this, these books are different. They they assume that the cook already knows, you know, the basics. And what you find here is variations on dishes, how to cook them properly. So that's what we have here because they, you know, such basics they were learned orally, you know, from you know, transmitted from right. one generation. You don't need cookbooks for right. these things. Right, and people didn't really, they didn't write, you know, the, the common person did not read and write, so they, it was, an or, you're right, oral translation. Well, they did, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, that, I mean, they, they read those books. I mean, I mean earlier, be, earlier on, earlier, when they yeah, were did yeah. by oral tr- yeah. um, uh, transmission. Um, you know, you, you spoke about the cooks in the marketplace being given mm-hmm. the ingredients and cooking the dishes. Um Give us a little background about what Cairo, the bustling city at the time, what what it would have been like in that era of the you know the 14th century. Yeah, well, it's uh, there are a lot of things to say about it. I mean, we are lucky to have a historian Al Makrizi who really wrote you know like volumes on life in Cairo at the time, and we get uh, you know a very uh, vivid picture of uh, uh, you know of what. Uh, life was at at least in the you know the centers in the congested city center uh, of cairo uh, first of all you know we noticed that um, it was a congested place i'm talking about you know that's just the center you know the right. centers of the right. city and uh, people lived in kind of uh, you know uh, multi uh, storied uh, buildings which was, uh, you know, unusual. I mean, I haven't heard of this before uh, reading about these things. And uh, they lived, some of them even lived in just rented rooms. And the um, the first level, you know, the ground level was uh, rented to shops, and they were not connected to the living uh, uh, sections in the, in the above uh, uh, stories. And as such, of course, you cannot... Uh, uh, you know, uh, have running water for every single room in this this building. So some of them didn't, of course, most of them didn't have kitchens in their uh, rooms or their small apartments, which definitely, of course, uh, necessitated that the uh, the presence of the availability of uh, carry out foods. You know, right. sounds like small so. So the markets was. became the markets were very important 
still in that era, right? It's still, yeah, because, you know, not everybody lived in the center. So people had to do their uh, shopping. And uh, Mel um, Makrizi describes uh, several uh, uh, bustling, uh, uh, you know, like souks, like, like uh, they call it aswak, that's a market. And um, he mentions, uh, he describes specific ones, you know, like ones he... Um, he admired, for example, he mentions the street between the two palaces, Bain al-Qasrain. This street, you know, was immortalized in uh, Najib Mahfouz's uh, uh, novels be- between the two palaces. This was a kind of thoroughfare. And people sometimes would go not necessarily for shopping, but, you know, go for fun. Mm. And on both sides, you find uh, people selling, like, uh, grilled pigeons uh, or fried sparrows, wedges of melon. They can buy yogurt. They can buy cheese. So it was fun to go there and buy, you know, those snack snack foods. There are other, uh, uh, you know, markets where you can do your shopping. Like uh, when they were kind of specialized, uh, there are special places where you can buy your uh, vegetables, uh, your meat, the fish. And, um, you know, there are, they even say that there were even specialized stalls for just selling, you know, those table uh, herbs, mm, like mm-hmm. parsley, uh, I mean, the uh, fennel or, uh, you know, like uh, leeks or something. So they were kind of specialized. But in, in, in the a certain, uh, uh, what they call uh, neighborhood, Hara, uh, certain uh, kind of kind of affluent neighborhoods where they have their own everything. You know, they have everything in, in their markets. Uh, they have their own uh, communal bakery, foreign. They have their uh, bathrooms, uh, public bathrooms, and they have everything they need of what uh, you know. Like they have shops and shops of different, of, of, you know, selling different things. So they do their shopping. And, uh, you know, people, of course, had to either walk to those, uh, uh, to those uh, you know, uh, markets or they can use uh, donkeys. And they were, uh, you know, we read that they were uh, beautifully ornamented and, you know, decorated and people uh, just uh, hire them and, uh, and go and do their shopping. Hmm. Um, of course, donkeys, because the horses were just limited, uh, you know, the, only the military were uh, allowed to use horses, so they had to use donkeys. So it's it's interesting. So they really were community centers. I mean, they were the marketplaces. They were, yeah, yeah, they were kind of community centers where, you know, in certain neighborhoods. Yeah, but cooking. in others, they were specialized that if you want fish, you go to the fish market. Hmm. And there were certain regulations for the fish market because, you know, if uh, they don't take care, the, the fish market would stink. So they were asked to, <laughs> <laughs> to wash their, uh, you know, shops regularly, any leftover fish from the day has to be uh, salted and sold as uh, salt-cured fish so that it doesn't uh, go bad and uh, smell. Uh, you know, there are certain regulations for such uh, marketplaces to keep them clean and, uh, you know, usable by people. Yeah. Well, now, you've, um, because you've done so much work translating the um, the Baghdadi cookbook and then writing your, um, your Iraqi cookbook, yeah. The I'm sure you found a lot of, uh, a, you know, a common thread and similarities in the types of, of ingredients and dishes that were presented in this book. But um, tell us a little bit about the the recipes contained within and the descriptions of, and about the diet of the people. 
Yeah. Well, definitely, I found certain similarities, you know, several similarities uh, between the one I translated in the 10th century and this one in the 14th century. I mean, it, it, it is as if uh, it's not uh, like 400 years elapsed between one and the other, you know. Hmm. Um, you know, like the, the stew's recipe, they were more or less the same thing. And, uh, uh, for example, you know, uh, I found, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of the chapters in Al-Warraq's book, uh, which was 10th century, on the uh, regulations of drinking water, I found exactly the same chapter in this book. And uh, I was, you know, really uh, surprised. I mean, after 400 years, you still find these things. So at, at the beginning, I doubted that uh, perhaps, you know, I mean, I doubted that, I mean, would it be possible that he has copied from Al-Warraq? But that, I mean, the, 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 the uh, parts that he shares with Al-Warraq are very, uh, are very limited. So when I did my research for this book, I realized that uh, after all, both of them uh, copied from other sources, from, uh, from other sources uh, that uh, were still circulated, you know, uh, during those 400 years, um, like from uh, one of the uh, books by uh, Ar-Razi, the famous, uh, the 9th century famous Baghdadi physician mm-hmm. in his book Al-Mansuri, or from um, recipes, for example, we have for uh, the sick, you know, they, they are meatless dishes, they are cooked, uh, to just, you know, to uh, feed the, the sick people. They were called muzawarat, you know, counterfeit dishes. I found similar recipes, and I discovered that both of them were, were uh, copying from uh, al-Baghdadi, also a book by Ibn Butlan. Uh, he was called Ibn Abdun, or from Ibn Masaway, you know, other doctors. So um, apart from such, you know, uh, things I discovered, you know, like direct I mean, like borrowings from other books and, uh, you know, tapping that both of them copied. I also found, you know, the recipes used, the, uh, like zirbaja, sikbaj, uh, you, know, uh, you know, those uh, sweet and sour uh, stews uh, or apricot stews. Of course, you know, I found that the recipes are, uh, you know, they are, they are, you know, they are describing the same recipes, but of course, the details are different. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I want to talk more about some of those details and those recipes. Yeah. Um, pigeons, fish, uh, yeah. wonderful <laughs> things. When we come back after a short break, so stay with us. I like making crackers. Crackers are are easy and kind of foolproof, too. And recently I've been making flaxseed crackers. You just take some flour, all-purpose flour, hmm, maybe Bob's Red Mill all-purpose flour, and salt, very important, a little bit of baking soda, and seeds or any kind of grains that you like. And I am particularly fond of making flaxseed crackers. Bob's Red Mill offers a great variety of seeds and grains, but their flaxseed is really good. It's good to sprinkle on your cereal in the morning or uh, gives you that 
extra nutrition that you won't find in any other way. But in the flaxseed crackers, it adds a little variety to the crunch, and I like that. It's not a nut, and it's not a large seed. It's small enough that it's chewable, and you get this flavor that you're not quite sure what you're eating, but I'm sure it comes from the fact that it's a good seed and it's processed well. Bob's Red Mill offers, as I said, a lot of a lot of variety of seeds and grains, and and their milled products are all top notch. You can find out all about their products on bobsredmill.com, and don't forget to use the code TastePod for twenty five percent off your order. And I said, oh, I wanna go. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Nawal Nasrallah, and she has translated the treasure trove of benefits and variety of the table, an incredible compendium, as I mentioned at the top of the show, of recipes. I'm not even going to begin to tell you all the types of recipes in it, um, and I'm sure, Nawal, you would not have the energy to do to go through <laughs> all of them either. But you taught, you mentioned earlier um, about fish and pigeons. Um, fish, I want to I want to talk about first. There was the the Egyptians were known for their interesting agricultural practice, and there are so many recipes for fish. Aha! Uh-huh, we discover why. Yeah. <laughs> why yeah. is that? Yeah. Well. Um, you know, because of the, you know, the um, the location, you know, geographical location of Egypt. It's uh, at the Mediterranean Sea, the Red Sea. There is the Great River Nile. So there are lots of sources for fish, different kinds of uh, uh, fishes. Some of them are, uh, you know, uh, sea fishes. Some of them are river fishes. And they were uh, all used, the big ones, the small ones. The big ones, for example, in the cans are used uh, fresh, Uh, whereas we have recipes for using the anchovies, which are like sardines, you know, small Mm -hmm. sardines. And uh, they were used, um, sometimes in the recipes they are used fresh, and in some of the recipes, they are uh, the recipe calls for uh, salt cured anchovies. You know, like the anchovies we have, mm-hmm. uh, we, we buy today in in, in, ta- in tins or something, and they are seasoned and, and they taste lovely. I mean, if you, uh, I mean, I, I encourage people to try it to buy to buy anchovy anchovies and to try the recipe. It would be lovely, you know, with lemon juice, with olive oil, with with the spices. It's really lovely, and. Um, and the freshwater fish, I mean, they, they, their practice of, of flooding the Nile. Talk about well, that. Well, yeah, the Nile, that's, a, that's really a big thing in, in, in Egypt, even from ancient times. All visitors, they, they marvel at the way it flowed, you know, the opposite way from the <laughs> south to north. I mean, they are familiar with, with rivers flowing from north to south, but this one they, they found strange. Uh, and uh, of course, we, ha- we find certain, uh, you know, w- w- so many writers wrote about the Nile. They 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 said that it flowed from paradise, and uh, because of the flooding, the regular flooding of the Nile, uh, of course, it was they looked forward to it. You know, unlike floods in other areas like in Mesopotamia, you know, in Iraq, uh, they were catastrophes mm-hmm. because they happened in spring when the crops has just come out, so they destroy everything. Uh, 
But in, the, in, in Egypt, it was the opposite, exactly the opposite. It was regular. Uh, the River Nile starts uh, rising slowly in the summer until in September it reaches its highest level, and then it, it floods and uh, covers the, uh, all the lands around it. And when it recedes, of course, behind it, it leaves a fertile soil, which was really, uh, you know, very good for, uh, uh, you know, uh, growing plants and also for making uh, excellent pottery. So these were their, uh, I mean, two things they made from this, uh, uh, you know, excellent soil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, of course, there is uh, this funny story about uh, Herodotus. He, he, he marveled, of course, like the rest, at the, at the Nile when he visited it in the 4th century or 5th century B.C., and he said their river, their river flows from south uh, to north, and uh, which gave him, I don't know, the impression that Egyptians do things the opposite way. <laughs> that yeah. women, for example, they piss <laughs> sitting, standing, and men do it sitting. I don't know this. <laughs> Well, he you was know, drawing some very strange conclusions, <laughs> yeah. indeed. Yeah, but the fish. Yeah. But I mean, you mentioned that the children, even children, were able were yes. catching a lot yeah. of fish when the during the flooding period. So yeah, there because was... they get trapped. You know, when the river flows, it flows to the lands, and of course, when it recedes, it leaves all those uh, puddles. You know, all those uh, puddles and uh, streams. I mean, water. A ponds of water, and then the fish would be trapped in it, and even kids would be able would would able would be able to catch the fish for their families. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, uh, so the flooding of the Nile was really uh, a way of life for the for the Egyptians. Yeah, and and the pigeons, they, their love of pigeons, and much the as, pigeons. Yeah. from ancient times, you know, there is evidence that they made those coats. Uh, all all over Egypt, they make look coats. like the, they look like beehives almost, yeah. like beehives, yeah. you know, like domed uh, constructions of uh, of clay, and they made holes in them, and uh, like a vessel, uh, you know, attached to it. So when the, the these were to attract the wild pigeons, uh, because they didn't for food, they uh, they liked to use those, you know, the 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 you know the eggs hatched from those wild pigeons. So then when the wild pigeons come to those and settle in those coats, uh, they would lay their eggs, they would hatch, and they would use these. They would grow into, uh, you know, young pigeons because they favored the uh, the plump young pigeons, you know, for their dishes. They mm-hmm. called it firach, firach hamam. <clears throat> even today, I mean, even today, I mean, I mean, you can still find those coats uh, all along the River Nile, especially in the Delta area. And I have read that, uh, of course, we know that fool, you know, the, the fava beans is the national dish of the Egyptians. And a writer says, uh, stuffed pigeons, firakh mahshi, is the unofficial uh, national dish of Egypt, huh. even today. <laughs> even today, right. There is and also, I forgot to mention, you know, oh. about chicken. I mean, chicken is, uh, was, uh, you know, we, we, when we, when you read Ken's, you see that uh, chicken features a lot in, in those recipes. And uh, when you read how, I mean, when we read, of course, I, I read in, about how they uh, used to get those chickens. Uh, they had the artificial incubators. <clears throat> they found a way of, uh, you know, hatching I mean, all those eggs. They would uh, use, the, like, um, you know, a courtyard mm-hmm. with uh, several artificial incubators. Each incubator would, uh, you know, would be enough for a 1,000 eggs or something. 
and there were workers, and they, they made the, 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 the incubator to look like a, a chicken. It, it was warm, and uh, they would uh, turn the eggs periodically like the mother chicken would, you know, like the chicken would do, and they would uh, test its temperature on the, by putting the eggs on their eyelids like the chicken huh. does, uh-huh. and until they hatch, and then, of course, <clears throat> they, um, you know, they, they, had they grow them into, uh-huh. um, you know, and they, you know, like in chicken. So, yeah. so they were the they had this chicken them. industry going long before long before um, anyone else. Yes, you know, and, they, and even they call learn. it Ma'mal uh, al which is the chicks factory. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not unlike today, for sure, <laughs> at all. Well, in fact, and there was a, yes, there are there are quite a few recipes that I noticed for chicken, and one caught my eye that I just can't wait to try. And it brings me to another point in that it's it was a recipe for sweetened chicken yeah, with pistachios. Yeah. Now the, the, there's a lot of sugar used sugar, in a lot yeah, of these recipes. Yeah. Talk, let's talk about sugar a little bit. Yeah, sugar. Well, that's uh, you know, I mean, um, you mentioned the sweet chicken. Uh, it was a typically Egyptian uh, uh, dish. Even uh, you know, we have uh, accounts of uh, visitors to the region. And they report that, um, I mean, they give the impression that this, this was an exclusively Egyptian dish. So a lot of sugar. Um, well, you know, um, sugar came with the Arabs. When the Arabs spread in the, you know, in the areas and then they came with, uh, to Egypt, they brought with them uh, certain plants. And sugar, uh, cane sugar, and sugar cane was one of them, uh, in addition to eggplant, um, taro, uh, uh, citron trees, uh, and they all proved to be uh, to, to grow successfully. Of course, due to the fertility of the, uh, the Nile Delta. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sugar industry was really a booming business. I mean, they had so so, so many factories and producing uh, several uh, stages of uh, purified. I mean, uh, refined sugar until you have the. Uh, they call sukkar mukarrar, which is the white sugar, the whitest sugar you can find. Mm-hmm. And uh, this used to import. It was a, a valuable commodity that was import. That they, they, this, they used to export to other uh, uh, places. But they used, of course, there were other other kinds like brown sugar, uh, molasses, several uh, grades of molasses. Uh, you know, from the cheap ones to the more expensive ones, from refined sugar. So there was sugar everywhere, and we can see reflected in um, in this uh, book. You know, it's, it's it's everywhere, even in sauces. You know, like yeah, uh, it was it was very sauces. interesting. Yeah, just yeah. to see and the even use the, of it. The dessert uh, section has uh, I don't know what eighty recipes of dessert. Oh, all, yeah. You know. <laughs> And there's also something else, you know, sugar also uh, is, uh, is, it was associated, I mean, I found from my readings, it was associated with the, uh, you know, the addiction to uh, hashish, which is marijuana. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, this was, a, they considered it a, a social affliction, and they wrote about it. Al-Makrizi, the, our historian who wrote about Egypt, he also wrote about it, and he said it started with the, uh, with the you know with the uh, Sufis because it uh, inhibited uh, their uh, appetite, but then of course it spread to other, uh, uh, especially to the uh, poorer uh, uh, you know uh, uh, slices of society, 
they even called it Hashishat al-Fuqara, which is marwana of the poor, because it was, you know, they didn't, they, uh, Ibn Baytar, the uh, herbalist, the 12th century herbalist, described how the Egyptians do it. He said they will um, uh, grind the, the plant, they mix it with sesame, sugar, and eat it. And it suppressed their uh, hunger, you know, because they have no money. So what do they do? <laughs> they just eat this to suppress their hunger. And what's more, they said, it, it was also, you know, the, it also dried semen so, uh, and suppressed uh, sexual appetite. So it, so less, uh, less kids, less money spent, etc. Hmm. So, um, you know, there's a book written in the uh, 15th century by Ibn Sudun. Um, he talks about, you know, part of it, he talks about his cravings. Uh, for sugar, and this was reflected in in his poetry. Um, he mentions, I mean, I noticed that a lot of he mentions, uh, you know, sugar and uh, pastries and all these syrupy uh, desserts in in his poetry. You know, um, of course, I was happy to see this because it enabled me to, uh, you know, find the correct uh, pronunciation, for example, of certain. Uh, names of uh, recipes, I, I, I mean, of desserts, I wasn't uh, sure in the cans and etc. But it, it's also, uh, it's a kind, it, it also hides, uh, you know, it, he's, he's trying to talk about this social ill in a, in a kind of humorous way um, and tries to expose it. And of course, we all, we all know the, the, I mean, he himself was a uh, hashish addict, so he, he knows how, uh, you know, he, he knows how it was. Right. Um, yeah. I, a couple of points um, that I want to to have you touch on before we have to end, and that is um, the uh, talking about there are recipes in there not necessarily for edible mm-hmm. foods, but also, and then to um, the other question I wanted to ask were the types of spices that were very common and any ingredients that were surprising that we don't see anymore that you might have found. Let's start with the ingredients you, that maybe we don't use or find or know that much about anymore. Um, well, uh, first of all, um, you know, of course we know mastic gum. Yes. But I was surprised to find that uh, mastic is used with savory dishes a lot, especially uh, uh, dishes that have meat in them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was surprised because from the al book, I looked carefully and they only occur in desserts. Hmm. And that's how we use them today. But then, of course, you know, um, you know the reason is when you read about the what the uh, doc, what the physicians thought about of the uh, of the air in Egypt. They uh, thought it was putrid, mm-hmm. humid, and hot, and uh, of course the and and and, the, and the, the meat. They said that the lamb, the mutton they used, it had a, a strong smell. So they, I think that mastic was used just to, um, you know, to remove this smell and to, and because of the, uh, you know, the properties in, in mastic to uh, combat putridity in, mm. you know, in foods. Right. So uh, I also noticed that um, the recipes use a lot of uh, lemon juice, uh, grape, uh, sour grape juice. Uh, pomegranate juice a lot, you know, in, in most of the recipes. 
And when you read about the, also, uh, some of them say that that is because the, the water of the Nile was, uh, was uh, too sweet, so they needed to uh, use these things. A sour and, agent, but, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. And also they said because of the putridity, humidity, and uh, the heat of their, uh, of their uh, uh, you know, uh, of their air, they needed certain cold things to combat these, right. uh, you know, harmful uh, properties of the air. Yeah. So, well, just, yeah, a, so just a word about some of the recipes in there, because the book is about the entire... Um, well, in habits, a culture of dining and eating, and of course, that is cleanliness and smells, yeah, yeah. perfumes. Yeah. Um, so, mention that a little. There's recipes for things like that in there too, as well. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of recipes. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the um, I think the the writer of Ken's wanted the dining experience to be uh, a complete one, mm-hmm. starting. At, you don't only the, uh, eat food, but you also have to take care of the what happens after food. You need to wash your hands. You need to anoint your uh, uh, your face, the, the beard, the you know the fingers to get rid of because they use their uh, fingers to eat the food, and um, they have to get rid of all those smells. Uh, they had to uh, cleanse the the dining area by uh, you know sp- sprinkling uh, uh, just all those uh, you know aromatic distilled uh, uh, you know uh, distilled waters. So we have recipes for hand washing preparations. Um, we have recipes for uh, certain powders that you can uh, uh, sprinkle here and there to uh, you know. Uh, improve the smell of the area. Uh, we have also um, uh, incense preparations, and we have papuri. Uh, there's a recipe for papuri, uh, which is put in a long-necked uh, uh, bottle, which mm-hmm. is called fiyasha, and they put it in corridors. They put it in toilets to improve their smells. So uh, this book, uh, I think that it caters, indeed, it caters to the entire body and not only to the, you know, to satisfying the appetite. Right, a book of housekeeping as well. Right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Well, you... Housekeeping, yes, because it uh, also talks about how to uh, preserve fresh fruits until uh, they are not in season and all that, you know, and... Uh, it is, it's, really a, it, it's really a source of, of so much. You've given um, scholars a lot to, know, to yeah, work yeah. with as far as anyone wanting to learn more about yeah. uh, Egyptian cuisine and, and the heritage of such. But also for people who, if it's their own heritage, they're wanting to know, you know, where, where did some of these foods begin? Where did things start? I think it's, it's as I say, also an eminently cookable book. It's you can just to use the recipes. A little daunting. There are so many of them. Yeah. But yeah. it also shows a lot of the um, the influences of those those dishes on on today's modern cuisine and, yeah. and Middle yeah, Eastern cuisine. Is so and Egyptian cuisine seems to be so hot right now, especially. You know? yeah. 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 And I found so many similarities between. I mean, the techniques used uh, then and the techniques used now. So I think for uh, people, I mean, that's why I dedicate my book to uh, two young people, Sarah Sayed and Basim Khalifa. They are the ones who established the, started the chapter of slow food in Egypt. And uh, I mean, for, uh, I mean, the slow food movement depends on, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they, they want to, uh, to ba- go back to traditional uh, traditional way of cooking as a, to combat, you know, fast food uh, 
uh, the invasion of fast food. Right. And um, this book, of course, you know, it's a wealth of information for to go back to heritage. I mean, heritage is important. It's a yes. way of self-discovery. That's right. So this is a, really a delicious way of uh, discovering oneself. Yeah. Well, it was a delight. And, and oh, and then the, and the color plates that are in it. How many of those came from, were they in the earliest manuscript, do you think? Or were they added at subsequent times? The, uh, what, the illustrations the, uh, and, and the, the, oh, the, uh, illustrations, the plates. And, I found them in different museums. But the, uh, the illustrations that uh, are taken from the book are the, uh, the, the manuscript, you know, folio uh, pages from the, from the manuscript. But the other uh, 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 illustrations, they were taken from other books, other but they're dealing with the same period. So, you know, um, I wanted to show, like, what, uh, what like, porcelain was like at the time, what uh, cooking pots were at the time. So this is, you know... The, the book wasn't illustrated itself wasn't illustrated okay that's that was that was what i wanted to know well before we sign off i um, just tell our listeners where they can find some of your adaptations of the recipes your blog what did, how oh can there you is the uh, the egyptian the medieval egyptian kitchen uh, my website i started it uh, especially especially for this book medieval egyptian kitchen the medieval com. egyptian okay. Uh, kitchen Okay, terrific. So people can find yeah. well, those. Well, they just Google my name and they find okay. everything. You know, they, they will need. find that. Uh, yeah. Naval, it has been a pleasure, as always. Well, and, thank you for having me. And I, um, I urge anyone who's interested in this to, to try to snag a copy and, or go to the library, get the copy, um, <laughs> yeah. and use it. It's, once again, Treasure Trove of Benefits and Variety at the Table, a 14th century Egyptian cookbook, and it's introduced the introduction the glossary wonderful glossary by the way and yes, translated by Nawal Nasrallah thank you so much thank you and thank you for listening again this has been another taste of the past Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.